This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one. He was appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name.
nothing but the blood of Jesus. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Men's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along, put me back together.
is nothing, nothing is better than you.
Hello, Redemption Arcadia. It is Easter Sunday, and that reminds us of the good news that Good Friday is not the end of the story, but it's really just the beginning. Today, we celebrate the resurrection, and that is a good thing. But the way we want to talk about it is uh, through a story that I like to tell. I like to tell this story quite a lot. Some of you might even be familiar with how I like to tell this story. But the reason I like to tell this story is because it's God's story. It's a story ultimately of redemption and restoration, but it's also a story of pain, suffering, discipline, and sacrifice that is often involved in receiving redemption and restoration. This story covers much of history. It covers many centuries. And I'm going to start it around the year 1000 BC, maybe 1010 BC. So the setting is God's people, the nation of Israel. They're the survivors of the Exodus. 400 years earlier, they had been taken out of Egypt because they were slaves in Egypt. And, and they were taken through the Red Sea and they spent time in the wilderness and eventually they entered the promised land and they'd been there now for 400 years. And God loves his people. This is why he saved them. He loves his people and he wants a relationship with them and he wants true reverence from his people. In other words, God calls for a heart that yearns for him, not just people going through the motions. Of course, because of the fallen nature of our hearts and our minds and our souls, that's a challenge. We can, be get, we can get pretty good at just going through the motions, but he wants a heart that truly yearns for us. Anyway, finally, around 1010 BC, the people of Israel had decided that having God as their king, Yahweh as their king, wasn't what they wanted anymore. They looked around at other nations. They said, all these other nations have a human king. We want a human king. And so they started demanding that God let them have a king. And God kept telling them that this was not a good idea. This will not, probably not end well. Yet they kept telling God, no, we want a king. Give us what we want. Be careful what you, want, what you ask for. Be careful what you want. Be careful what you pray for. So they gave him a king. And the first king was King Saul. Saul wasn't that great of a king. In fact, God had already decided about halfway through Saul's reign that he wasn't going to make it. And he had already decided that David would be the next king, that David would be a better king. Ultimately and eventually, God deposed Saul and David did become king. And David was a great king. He's described in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart, even though he was a tremendous sinner. He also loved God, wrote many of the Psalms. So he was a, he was a good king. And then came David's son Solomon as the third king. And those were the glory days of Israel. Solomon even built the temple. And during that time of Solomon's reign, tiny little Israel, God's people, became the greatest nation in the world. They had everything. Everything was going for them. They had it all. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 12, in 922 BC, that was the year, we read that just after King Solomon had passed away, his successors, Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, who was a prominent leader in Israel, they got into a major squabble over how they should be taxing the people. So just stop there 
And just think about this. I mean, just imagine that. People are squabbling over taxes. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. Anyway, Israel divided over this issue. The, the issue of taxes was so bad that it tore the nation apart. And they ended up with what was known as the Northern Kingdom. They retained the name Israel. Samaria, the city of Samaria, became their capital. And they also got 10 of the tribes up in Israel. And then there was the Southern Kingdom, where uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, stayed as king. They got two of the tribes down in, in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and Jerusalem was retained as their capital. But it just went downhill from there. Uh, both nations, their kings, their leaders began to rebel against God. They thought they knew better than God. They, they wanted to do things differently than what God had prescribed. They broke their covenant with God. And God kept giving them chance after chance after chance, and God gave them warning after warning after warning. And eventually we get to the prophet Hosea who warns the northern kingdom, Israel, that their demise is imminent because they've been so rebellious. He also says in his prophecy, very interestingly, he says also that Judah will be spared this time. The southern kingdom will be spared this time. And the southern kingdom is going to be spared not because of their military might, not because of their chariots or their horsemen or their warriors, but because God will keep the invading nation out of Judah. God will protect them. That's the only reason the southern kingdom gets protected. But in 722 BC, exactly 200 years after the nation split, the Assyrians, the, na the, the world's powerhouse at that time, came in from the northeast and they traveled south into Israel and they destroyed Israel. And they made Israel a vassal state, but they also took many of the Israelites away and made them intermarry. They brought other peoples into Israel, into Samaria in particular, and made them intermarry there. The northern kingdom was destroyed. But as I said, the Assyrians stopped there because God ordained that. Prophets had been warning of this. So Judah sees what happens. The southern kingdom sees what happens to the northern kingdom and so they institute some reforms. They kind of clean up their act for a little while, but it doesn't last. In the year 609, just a little over 100 years later, Judah was in full-blown rebellion against God once again. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon at that time, Babylon becomes the greatest, most powerful nation in the world at that time because from the east, Babylon sweeps into Assyria and destroys Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar leads his armies into Assyria to do that. And he decides to just keep going. And so he heads uh, northwest and then turns south and comes down through what was now Samaria and comes to Judah. And in 605 in Judah, he attacks and pillages Judah and Jerusalem. And that's when the Babylonian exile starts for the Jewish people. And many people, tens of thousands, are carried off to Babylon, but he also leaves some of the Jews there. And Judah becomes, Jerusalem also becomes like a vassal state. They have to pay taxes to Babylon. But even that doesn't seem to get their attention. The leaders of Judah continue to rebel. So 10 years later, uh, excuse me, eight years later, only eight years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his army. They invade again. And then even that didn't straighten things out. And finally, in 587 and 586 B.C., 10 years later, 
after the second time. So the third time he comes in and Nebuchadnezzar finishes the job, total destruction. He even goes around the temple of uh, Jerusalem, the house of God, and he digs up the foundations of the walls so that it's just nothing but rubble and dirt. Now God's people had been warned that this exile was coming. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes prior to this and warns of it, then writes as it's happening, and then writes after it happens in the wake of the destruction as well. In fact, in 587 and 586, as he watches Jerusalem turn into a wasteland, he writes the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations doesn't start very well. It starts like this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. He's speaking of Jerusalem. How like a widow, she, Jerusalem, has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Lamentations, this book, is a lament. Five chapters of lament about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of God's city, the destruction of God's people and the sorrow and the grief that the people are feeling and how awful it was. Lamentations is a sad and difficult book describing life without the provision nor the protection of God. That's what it's describing. And and it talks about how in contemporary terms, people would spend $10,000 just to be able to buy a loaf of bread. People were giving up their children. They just give them up. Read in Lamentations chapter four, even worse things happen. I just, it's hard to even talk about how bad it was in Jerusalem when God removes his protection and provision. When the people said, we don't need you anymore. And God said, well, well, you're gonna find out what it's like without me. You You need this lesson. Their friends, Jerusalem's friends become their enemies, mocking them at every opportunity. And simply surviving in the city of Jerusalem Uh, has become the best that they can possibly do. Just simply surviving, getting up every morning and wondering, am I going to make it one more day? Yet, in the center of this extended lament and grief, in the center of it, in chapter 3, there are verses of hope and verses that describe God's faithfulness and if we're patient, God's coming salvation. Let Let me read it to you. It doesn't start too well, but hang in there with me. These are beautiful verses. Jeremiah writes this, starting in verse 16 of Lamentations 3. He, speaking of God, has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is Jeremiah in the middle of a book that is grieving, complaining, mourning, and lamenting. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I think there's a pretty good hymn that has those words. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So even in the midst of this total destruction, in the midst of this lament, in the midst of just the worst thing that any human being could possibly go through, there's hope. And there's a, there's, a, there's a shadow of the hope that the Messiah is coming, that Jesus is coming in verses 25 and 26. There are really two levels on which Jeremiah is speaking about the hope and the faithfulness that God has for his people. One is that the exile is eventually going to end, and it does. After 70 years in exile, the exile ends. And this summer, we're actually going to go through one of the books that that is a narrative history of what happens after the exile ends. It's the book of Jeremiah. But there's also, in these two verses, 25 and 26, Jeremiah is pointing to the fact that God has always promised a Messiah, and the Messiah is coming. And some 600 years later, the Messiah comes. One of the challenges that we have as human beings is that we so often reject and question and turn away from the truth and the hope of God's faithfulness in times of trouble and suffering, even and especially when that suffering is the direct result of our own wrongdoing or transgression. And we forget that it is specifically in those times of challenge and suffering that God's grace can be so clear and so profound and his glory can be seen and understood so deeply that those are the times when we see God do his best work. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, eventually, as I said, some years later in the 500s and the 400s BC, God begins to restore Jerusalem and Judah. But it takes great pain, suffering, discipline, and sacrifice to do it. And we'll talk a little bit about that this summer for nine weeks. But even after they're restored from the exile, there's still the problem of sin. And even after seeing all that God does, his grace and mercy to restore the people, his people rebel again. Even in the midst of the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are great stories of restoration, the people get impatient and they and they rebel again. And so God finally pays the ultimate price, the final price, in order to love and redeem his people. He sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus came for one mission, one purpose. And that was to save people. That was it, to save people from their sin, to reconcile people to God so that we could be in his presence forever and ever and ever, for eternity that we would get to be a part of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God that is here on earth right now, though not perfect, but the coming kingdom is going to be perfect restoration, the new Jerusalem. He came to do this by being the perfect sacrificial lamb. He was the perfect human being. He never sinned. And that made him the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And so on the cross, there was this, this transference, he, he traded his righteousness for our sin, and we get to trade our sin for his righteousness on the cross. That's why Good Friday is, is a day of mourning, and it's a day of darkness. It's not right that the Savior would be killed by the very people he was trying to save. That's not right. And yet it accomplished something for us. And the resurrection proves 
what the, what the cross accomplishes for us. So Jesus has this wonderful, beautiful ministry of teaching and healing and, and turning the world right side up, essentially. He also predicts his execution and he predicts his resurrection. He predicts the trial. He predicts the cross. And that cross being the sacrifice for our sins so that we could exchange our sin for his righteousness and we can be redeemed and restored and reconciled to God. When we are defeated, when you and I are defeated and this world can defeat us, it can really, it can really give us challenges. It can make us suffer. When this world defeats us, we need to look at the cross because the cross is not the end of the story. And we need to look at the cross because of what Jesus did for us there. And we find our hope and our, our salvation there. And the other thing we find there is we find God's faithfulness there. He was so faithful to us, his covenant to us so strong that he sent his son and gave his son to do this for us. So on the cross, when Jesus says, you know, you're gonna destroy this temple, but in three days it'll be raised again. Jesus gets to prove his point three days later on Sunday. Here it is in Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, which was Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So the women departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I, I can't even imagine that moment. They're running to tell the disciples and Jesus stops them as they're running and says, greetings. That's just amazing. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. The idea of taking hold of his feet means that they recognized that it really was Jesus. And, and this is that moment when they realize, oh, now I get all of his teaching. He lives, therefore we live. This is amazing. They fall down and they grab his feet. It's an indication that they know who he is. And it's a sign of reverence and worship to him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, one of the things that I love about, I believe it's Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, it's recorded that Jesus says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. That is an extra dose of grace for Peter because Peter was the one who denied Jesus. And Jesus had predicted that he would deny him. So Peter denies Jesus. And, and Peter feels awful about this. He's riddled with guilt and shame. And, and I believe that Mark tells us that 
because it's an extra dose of grace from Jesus to Peter. He wants Peter to know that he's okay, that he didn't commit the unforgivable sin, and that Peter's going to be restored too, and, and Jesus does restore him. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. We need to understand that like the, like the Jews in the 6th century and the 5th century, the 7th century, the 6th century, and the 5th century B.C., we're also, in a sense, in exile. Paul says we're really not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We are, in liber- we are in exile, but Jesus is our liberation. We need to remember that. This is the greatest love story ever told, that God would purposefully put his son on the cross so that we could have salvation, so that we could have our sin, our debt of sin to God paid for, so that we could be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him. So then what happens? Even that's not the end of the story. If you turn to Acts chapter 1, you get the beginning of the end of that story, which we're still in that story right now, the church. So this is Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Luke writes these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's interesting how Luke starts the book of Acts in a, in a similar way that John writes much of the Gospel of John, talking about the work and the acts and the teaching and the, he, the, the miracles of Jesus. It's interesting how Luke keeps pointing at, at who Jesus is and what he did to affirm the fact that he's the Messiah. It sounds a lot like John. Verse 4, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that comes true at Pentecost some 40 days later. It's it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit hadn't existed before, but it was the coming of the Holy Spirit for the believers. And then verses six through eight. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They still didn't quite get what the kingdom of God was about. They still thought it was throwing off the yoke of the Roman government, the Roman oppression. So they asked him that question, and Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. Not going to tell you when that's going to happen or if it's even going to happen. That's not the point. You're missing the point. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, even Phoenix, Arizona, even Arcadia. So these verses describe Jesus' call to our submission to his lordship. He's our savior, but he's also our lord. He's our friend, but he's also the person that we take instruction from and we gain wisdom from and we are led by. He is the source of our power. And he's talking about how that power is going to come through the filling of his Holy Spirit in these verses. And he also tells us of our mission, our purpose. Our mission and our purpose is to testify to the reality of who he is. 
everywhere. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are representatives of his because he's done this on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. We get to be his ambassadors. We get to represent him. And then the last few verses, starting in verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And you see, there is our promise. That's the greatest promise that Jesus makes, is that he's coming again. We're in that weird time of the already, if you know Jesus, you're saved by Jesus, you're already saved, but we're not yet there at the restoration. And we wait on Jesus to come again for that restoration. It's the greatest promise on which you and I can place our hope this restoration that's coming. And I want to explain, this hope, this hope that we have is, is not like our human hope. It's not like, gee, I hope I get the raise, or I hope that the Suns make it to the NBA Finals, or I hope she says yes, or I hope he doesn't ask. It's not a hope like that, where it's a 50-50 thing. It's not a hope where it probably won't even come true. This is a hope that's already in the vault. This is a hope that is guaranteed. It's sealed for eternity. It's not a hope that'll fall short. Jesus said on the cross, one of the seven things he said on the cross was, it is finished. That's it, done deal. Your salvation is complete. My salvation is complete. There's nothing we can do to earn this salvation, to make ourselves worthy of this salvation. There's no merit that we can achieve. He gives it to us because of his grace and his mercy and his love. It's only out of response to that salvation that we then go and are ambassadors for Jesus. See, this is actually the culmination of what God is is doing for his people something that actually started as far back as Genesis chapter 3. This whole thing that we talk about here started in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall and in the middle of chapter 3 with an indication from God that there is going to be a Savior, there is going to be a Messiah. He tells the adversary that when he starts talking about the curses from the sin. It's called the Proto-Euangelion, it's the first good news in the Bible. It's as early as Genesis 3.15. That's amazing. And his people have been waiting for that ever since. That, That God would send his son to be crucified for us and then raise him to new life. And that he will come again to restore all of creation to that pre-sin paradise with no chance of it ever getting corrupt again. This is God giving us the final act of his journey with his people. That would be us, those who know Jesus. The resurrection is God's exclamation point to the crucifixion. Paul writes it very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
If you know Jesus, you know this truth. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come and is still coming. That's beautiful. And that is good news. If you don't know Jesus, this salvation is for you. This is God's moment of calling you to him through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to be reconciled to him, to be forgiven for your sin, to be given the power of the Holy Spirit to live with God now, to understand who he is, that he has this covenant faithfulness to us, his people. So I, I entreat you to come to Jesus. That's the message and the hope of Easter. It's interesting that we have one Easter Sunday, but we need to remember that we talk about the resurrected Christ every Sunday at Redemption Church because that's everything. That is everything on which we hang our hope, the resurrection of Christ. Happy Easter.
laid on a criminal's cross Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost But then Jesus 